Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran, and in this show I talk with composers, songwriters, producers, and scientists to bring you musical inspiration and practical composing tips. Today's episode features a fellow podcaster, Garrett Hope, of Composer on Fire. I asked Garrett what he's learned from his interviewees about the business side of composing, including how to overcome mental blocks like the imposter syndrome. If you ever have the sense that you're just kind of faking it, it can be completely demoralizing. And many people don't finish their degrees or are unable to get jobs because of this imposter syndrome. Garrett also shares some great tips he's learned through his own composing. Too much of one thing in a piece, my my ear starts to get tired of listening to it. So it's really nice if when the composer at some point gives me some contrasting something. I want to mention that Garrett also interviewed me for his podcast, and that'll be posted tomorrow. So check it out at ComposerOnFire.com. Now, let's get on to my talk with Garrett Hope. Well, Garrett, thanks so much for coming on Composer Quest here. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really excited about this. Yeah. So I was checking out your podcast, Composer on Fire. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. I just I think that's a great title, too. <laughs> yeah, the, the point of the podcast is to help composers with the business side of composing. Uh, we get lots of training on how to write music, but we don't really know how to then go out in the world and be a composer. What does that mean? How do you network? How do you market? How do you build a business? And I think if we're selling music at all, whether that's tickets to concerts, scores, or commissions, we're we're a business. I mean, according to the IRS, we're a business. So I'm trying to help people deal with that whole side of thing. It's not a how to compose podcast. It's more of uh, like what's the business side of things. Yeah, I think that's a good niche that isn't really filled it elsewhere i don't think so yeah thank you the few interviews i've heard are have been really good just like very open and honest composers yeah uh we tend to be pretty private people as composers as a group so uh, you do a good job of drawing drawing good answers out of out of the composers you're talking to as well it's it can be tricky but i think we're in a point um, in our cultural history where there there's no benefit to holding on to secrets. And the more information we can share and we can help each other and bring each other up, that'll raise the bar for everybody. Mm-hmm. What would you say are your favorite interviews from the show? That, that's hard to answer. Um, one of the most interesting was with Alf Bashai, who is in New York City, and he is the composer who's organizing the Ear Concerts, which is a new type of competition and performance idea. And he's trying to essentially a- answer the question, uh, how can we write music that people want to hear again and again? So they just had their first concert and people, composers submitted hundreds of pieces and he selected, I don't know, 15 or so composers. These were all piano pieces. And then they did the concert and they played it 
and the audience voted on which one they'd be willing to hear again. So then a small number were performed a second time, and then there was another vote to see the audience favorite, and that's the person who won the competition. Oh, cool. That's a great idea. It is, uh, but there's this balancing act that Alf is is managing to do between you know capitulation to the audience and pandering as well as maintaining some sort of what we might consider artistic integrity yeah but i don't i don't know i think that that is integrity if people want to listen again i i think i would guess that it wouldn't necessarily be the most like pleasing piece or like arti- or like artistically easy piece i would think it would be one that was like yeah pulls you in but yet you want to hear more so <laughs> i don't know right did he say what the results were yeah he, the it's been published i got his email cuz i'm on his mailing list i can't remember who won but it was a real success they ho- hosted it at a venue in new york city and it wanted he wanted to have more of a celebratory less formal concert attitude so there was there was a bar available and people could drink and socialize while their performances were happening though i do think people paid very good attention to what was going on on stage hmm. cool another interview that was really neat was when i interviewed valerie young who is a, a psychologist and she wrote a book on the imposter syndrome are you familiar with the imposter syndrome uh i think i have heard about it uh, is that where you're you feel like an imposter no matter what your skill level is or something like that? Yep. If you ever have the sense that if, if once people really figure out what you can do, they're going to kick you out or you don't belong in this club or whatever you've, you've achieved, you're just kind of faking it. That's actually a really pervasive problem. And studies have shown that not only is it true for all vocations, but in academia in particular, it's extremely pervasive and it can be completely demoralizing. And many people don't finish their degrees or are unable to get jobs because of this imposter syndrome. And so I was really interested to explore that from a creative standpoint, because so often we'll look at those around us and we'll say, oh my gosh, their music is so good. What am, what am I doing? Who am I faking? Right? Hmm. Yeah. Or you you look at the greats and we have all these stories about music just pouring out of Mozart or Beethoven and his tortured genius and and here I am sitting in my studio trying to write music. Who am I? And that's all a lie. That's the imposter syndrome. Hmm. Yeah. That's that's cool. Well, it's it's not that cool. It sucks. <laughs> But that's interesting. Yeah. I know uh, what you mean. Yeah. Interesting topic. Because actually, thinking back to the second episode of your podcast, uh, there's something interesting your guest said about like, some people can make it as a composer, even if they aren't like meant to be or <laughs> something along the lines of like, people shouldn't be doing it maybe, but they still can make a living if they keep at it. <laughs> Right. And then, and uh, yeah, I'm not sure I totally agree with that philosophy, but. Well, I think what he's trying to say is 
Well, I, I'm not trying to put words in his mouth. I'm not going to try to do that. But from my perspective, we can see that you don't have to be the best composer to have the greatest amount of success. If you go uh, to any catalog, publisher's catalog, and for a while there I was conducting a liberal arts college string ensemble, so I was always ordering new pieces. And there are a lot of pieces that really aren't very good, but they're selling a ton of copies. And so if I look at what he said there, and I can and I can s- kind of couple that with my own observations, I I can see that part of being a successful composer in terms of uh, making sales and, I don't know, financial reward has not as much to do with the skill of composing as much as it has to do with really good marketing, being in the right place at the right time, knowing the right people, and knowing how to sell your scores. Yeah. What have you kind of learned along the way um, that I mean, I mean, where did you start and how did you figure out that you wanted to be a composer? Oh, wow. How, how far back do I go? <laughs> I started university not intending to be a composer. Um, I actually double majored in music and history because I couldn't decide which one I loved more. And then I happened to take uh, composition lessons as an elective. And I had been in rock and metal bands in high school and really enjoyed it. And I had done some songwriting, but I had never really composed anything. And I, I got the bug. I was bit hard. And I thought, wow, this is really what I want to do. So then I went to master's, went to university again to get my master's and started teaching. And I never wanted to be a teacher either, though I'd been teaching private lessons since I was 16. But I, I really realized that this is where my skill set lies in the way I communicate with people, and I'm a born teacher. And then I started getting uh, lots of adjunct faculty jobs and was spinning my wheels teaching and driving from one campus to the next. So I went and completed the DMA so that I could be ha- at least have the minimum qualifications to apply for a full-time and hopefully tenure-track job. And then I, I got a three-year full-time job. It was a visiting uh, professor appointment, visiting assistant professor, and I loved it. But when that contract ended, I was actually unable to find another job in higher ed. And here I was at a, at a crossroads of my life where I had this immense skill set I knew I, I was a really good teacher. I am a good teacher. I love to compose. I think I'm a decent composer. <laughs> and I wanted to help people. And so I also wanted to f- try to figure out how do I re- start writing full time. And I started exploring this and building some businesses and trying to be self-employed through composing. And along the way, I started a piano tuning business to kind of help pay the bills as I was building these businesses up. And it's just been a crazy ride. Yeah. So, uh, are you currently like teaching adjunct, um, composing today read in your bio or? Well, uh, I'm, I'm not teaching composition. I am. I did not seek this out. Uh, I was contacted by the university here in Lincoln, university of Nebraska, Lincoln, because they had some personnel 
shifting that happened in the music department. And so I am currently teaching two sections of history of rock and roll. Oh, and each cool. section has 300 students in it. It's crazy. What? <laughs> I know. But it's so fun because every day I just get to listen to amazing music. <laughs> And cool. we start with Tin Pan Alley, and we go all the way through to today, and we're currently, um, we're just now, like, in the 70s. We just started hip-hop. Oh, and, cool. Yeah. What, what have you learned in studying the history of rock and roll? Or were you it's, always kind of, like, into the, that kind of history? Well, I've always been a fan of rock and roll, but I've learned a lot and one of the big takeaways that I've had this semester is that the people and the bands that really made it big had the guts to really go for it. And I think composers need to have that too. Uh, it's kind of like having no plan B. You're like, <laughs> I have this goal. I want to do this and, and hell or high water, I'm going to make it happen. And so these people often had to be really creative and how they learned how to market themselves and then building a team around them. Because no one did it all by themselves. They had good producers. They had good managers. And why aren't composers doing these things too? And when I look at the composers that are out in the world right now, writing music full time and seeing tremendous amounts of score sales, CD sales, whatever, and these are the people I try to interview on my podcast, uh, then they, they're doing this too. They've built PR teams. They have people who are managing their websites or their social media, right? Yeah. Um, they often will outsource some of their work, like music engraving. I love writing music, but music engraving sometimes is the most tedious thing I ever do. <laughs> yeah. And... That takes so much time, and I can look at my time and say it's worth X amount of dollars, and I can pay someone Y amount of dollars to do the engraving, and if Y is less than X, then I'm still moving ahead. And then I have a really good-looking product that I didn't have to create. Yeah. Yeah, do you have tips on finding an engraver? <laughs> well, there are people out there, really good people, and it's not cheap. So just doing a Google search will uh, find you some names. And there's a group on Facebook that focuses just on music engraving. And a lot of the people that comment and post regularly in that group do this full time. They do music engraving. Hmm. One way to get started that's more affordable is to talk to current composition students that are studying at the university. These are people who are in Finale or Sibelius every day and they're building and learning their skill set. And often they're happy to do some engraving for you. And it could be at a reduced rate than what you'd pay these full time engravers. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They, I, I went to a talk on engraving and just it kind of blew my mind how much I wasn't thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even just like thinking about page turns i mean i yeah. it should be obvious but like making the ends of pages have some rest so that the players can easily turn the page and just like trying to yeah. format your score around that it's a big issue and 
for my podcast, I've interviewed performers. And when I ask them, what are things that composers do that don't help the communication? Always the comment is notation and engraving. Bad page turns, um, or when we try to make the uh, staff sizes so small so that we can fit more music onto the page that now it's completely unreadable. Yeah. Yeah, and that that was another thing I I learned at this talk that I didn't think about. It's not... It's like you shouldn't just hit the percent button in Finale and shrink it. You should instead just try to squeeze the staff lines together a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> and it's hard to make it look good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I am not an expert engraver, but I've done a lot of it, as most composers have, because we, uh, over time, end up doing most of our own scores. Yeah. Um, yeah, the The other thing I've come across lately is um, I write for a trio that uses all iPads for oh, reading music, so... That that's another thing you have to think about is like they don't have two pages to look at at a time or three pages. They're mm. gonna have to flip through. And if their screen is only what five inches across, I mean, how many measures can you fit, and how many yeah. systems? Yeah, like it gets pretty limiting, right? Yeah. Wow. So I think actually I think they do print off music for the performances, but rehearsals just use iPads because it's quicker. So, but I'm, I'm sure there'll be more of that in the future. I know that, uh, one of the faculty ensembles here at UNL, they perform strictly on iPads and they've got Bluetooth connected page turners that they use with their feet. Ooh, nice. And there's a big push for that kind of technology at the university. So if you can make your score accommodate, so it's easy to read and page turns are less of an issue. That would facilitate a lot of things. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your music and some of your composing techniques. So I, I guess first I want to ask you about your monodrama, The Passion of Jehan, Joan of Arc. Or, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm yeah. pronouncing that right. but <laughs> <laughs> we, we say Jehane, which okay. is a, a French variation of how she would sign her name. Yeah, so... Tell me about that piece and what inspired you to write a 30-minute piece based on the Joan of Arc trials. Well, one of my collaborators, Stephen Sebbing, um, wrote the libretto for my DMA uh, project, and we wanted to continue collaborating, and he had met this incredible soprano, Rachel Eve Holmes, and we knew we wanted to do something and write it just for her. And I don't know how Stephen had the idea, but he's like, well, what if we do Joan of Arc? We have all the trial transcripts from after the English had captured her. And that's our primary source material about the life of Joan of Arc. And we wanted this to be a single act, not so much as it's, it's kind of like a song cycle the way I wrote it, but we wanted it to be performed in one setting and it could be semi-staged. So that's why we called it a monodrama. Is and that a term you came no, up with? No, it's not, actually. It means a single act work for one performer. Okay. A monologue sort of idea. Yeah. 
So I had this vision uh, of putting it together and I started writing the music and my good friend, Kurt Connect, who is a fantastic composer and one of the founders of Music Spoke, doing music publishing stuff, he had written a monodrama on the life of Julian of Norwich. And both of these women, Joan of Arc and Julian of Norwich, were alive at the same time. This was during the Hundred Years' War. Joan of Arc was obviously in France. Julian of Norwich was in England. Um, and they're both taking action. These are women of action in the late medieval period, and they're confronting the evil of war. And so we paired these two together as a concert, Joan of Arc and Julian of Norwich. Cool. And for my piece, I wanted to tell her story in this great big arc, and I wanted to convey that arc musically. So it starts very tonal, simple, diatonic language. simple, but not diatonic. It's more like chordal quintal type harmonies, but very pitch centric. And then in the middle, I, I expand out of that and I start, I do limited tone row type things. I also did something with uh, my soprano's tessitura. The first song starts at the bottom of her range, and each song progressively the tessitura rises and rises. And I was trying to symbolize Joan of Arc's ascent towards heaven because her whole life was driven by this passion and this vision she had received. And so uh, the last song, she's just she's on a D above the staff. <laughs> just nails it but she starts on a b flat below middle c it's incredible yeah cool (laughs) i i always think about um like martin luther king speeches um Mm -hmm. because i i noticed that like his pitch rises up so gradually over the course of an entire speech but it's just so dramatic and yeah, I don't know. Did you try to do it like very gradually throughout the whole piece? 
I did. I had mapped it out and I said, I have eight songs and I want to, I know I want to start here and I want to get here. So what are some usable ranges? And Rachel and I had spoken a lot over the phone about what her voice can do. Cause a fault composers often make when they're working with vocalists is they'll get the range and then they'll just maximize the extremes. And that can really tire a singer out. So you can hit those extremes under certain conditions but you don't want to exhaust the voice. So I was trying to be really careful. So uh, also I, I wanted to expand the ranges. So the first song, even though it's in her low tessitura, the entire range of it, I think is less than an octave. And by the time we get to the last movement, the tessitura for that movement is greater than an octave, even though, uh, it, the, the tessitura is focused on the very top end of her range. So that way she can move around and she can have some flexibility in her voice so she doesn't damage herself or wear herself out singing straight for 30 minutes. Cool. What kind of tips do you have on working with someone's libretto to turn that into melodies? You read it a lot. I try to be the character So who's speaking and what are they conveying? I also try to really think about what the author's doing. And Stephen and I discussed this a lot. Like, what was his intent? Why did he phrase it this way? Or what was his word choice? And on a few of the movements, there was some back and forth where I would say, you know, this isn't really working. Can we edit this here, here, and here? And so because we respect each other and we view what we're doing as a collaboration, there was a a lot of that. But once I have a poem that I I feel is usable, I am getting inside the poem or the text and I'm imagining it from the character's perspective and I'm trying to then convey what they are feeling and thinking through the music. It's like scoring a film. You can comment on it or you can be an objective, like an objective third voice, or you can be, play a character, or you can just help the audience enhance an emotion. And usually when I'm working with this kind of thing, I'm in the character and I'm commenting on the character instead of just writing so that the audience will feel a certain way. Any other techniques in that piece that you were trying out for the first time maybe? or I ended up scoring it for the soprano piano and string quartet. And I wanted to support the soprano as much as possible by doubling her lines where I, wherever I could. So part of that was a really interesting orchestration exercise for me because I didn't just want to mimic her lines. So how can I give her the pitch support that she needs so she can find her entrances um, and do some of those tricky leaps that I gave her Um, I don't know if I have tips or tricks for that, but I would just urge composers to really consider how you can support the vocalist. The more you can give the singer so that they can have the confidence to perform it the way you want it to be performed, the better it's going to be. But I wanted to do that in a way so the audience wasn't just thinking, oh, there's her next entrance or whatever. I wanted it to just be part of the the texture and the music, but it would be really obvious to the performers so that she would know exactly where she is and where she needs to get to. No more ready 
another vocal piece of yours that I really liked is uh, Lux Eterna. Oh, thanks. That one I th- I thought had some really cool chord progressions, and I-, I was curious how that works with the choir. If if you can get away with those kind of chord progressions easily, or they seem like they weren't too crazy that people could catch on to them. But yeah, it's not. I didn't think it was too crazy. I was writing this piece for a college level women's chorus. Because a friend of mine at the University of Wyoming had commissioned me to write it for him. And we wanted it to be accompanied, so I knew that I could support them with the piano. So that allowed me to get away with more. If, if the group was a cappella, I probably couldn't have done quite as much, because they would have had limited rehearsal time. And a lot of it was me just kind of improvising at the piano until I came up with things that really resonated, again, with the text and it's it's basically a prayer about the light of god shining forth Vertical choral music is really popular right now. Uh, You can think of the music of Eric Whitaker, these huge tertian chords. But I I really love counterpoint. So I I give moments of imitation, and then I contrast parallel movement with contrasting motions. I'm trying to actually be conscious of all these choices so that I can make a piece that's singable, communicates the text, and then is enjoyable to listen to. Yeah. Well, I think that is a good point about being aware of when you are doing things that are more vertical, like chunked chords, which can be really cool. Like, I love that style of, like, impressionist chords kind of going in parallel together but yeah I I think it is good to be aware and mix it up to give it variety yeah I think too much of one thing in a piece my my ear starts to get tired of listening to it so it's really nice if when the composer at some point gives me some contrasting something and then they can go back to what they began with, but then my ear has piqued its interest again. Yeah. Yeah, right now I'm working on a piece that I'm not sure exactly where it's going to go, but I'm realizing that my initial plan is maybe not a good one because, (laughs) (laughs) uh, well, my challenge is to write music for this video I, I took of mayflies flying around and it goes in and out of focus 
over the course of like 12 minutes, which is really interesting and meditative. And my piece, I also was thinking about that way, like meditative, calm, different than a string orchestra would normally play. And there'll be electronics. And I was toying with the idea of just having an electronic drone throughout. So maybe that could like represent this meditativeness. Um, But then the string orchestra kind of go to different keys, kind of conflicting a bit with uh, a constant chord going on in the electronics might be kind of cool. But I also don't want to bore people with it. (laughs) Well, there is a an appropriate time and place to do those those type of music. And I love that too. Think about, you know, Barber's Adagio for Strings, which is this incredibly beautiful and to me meditative piece. Yeah. I don't know if you agree with that. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, I mean it it gets very dramatic, but yeah, I I love that piece. But the, he builds some pretty good tension in that. And he uses imitation and counterpoint and then huge crescendos and it just builds and builds and builds until he finally releases it. But it's also coupled with these really long, slow-moving chords. So I think there's a way to balance it. Yeah. What a tricky problem. That sounds like a fun piece to write. Yeah, I think it will be. Do you have any compositions you're working on right now that are um yeah what kind of challenges are you facing at the moment at the moment i'm currently scoring a uh, independent film that's being produced here in nebraska and the film itself is about 100 minutes long so i think i've written at least 60 minutes of music at least whoa (laughs) yeah in the last two months And we're just wrapping that up. We're going to do our final screeners, and then they're submitting it to every single independent film festival that they can. And so that's been challenging. I love scoring for film. But part of the challenge is the narrative is not necessarily my own. And so I have to figure out what does the director really want this scene to be about, and how can I help that to happen? while also being as imaginative and creative as I can within those limitations. And I often, and this goes, this is true for all the pieces. I will often put artificial limitations on myself because then I can think more creatively within those limitations. Are you saying that the film itself is kind of that limitation for you or are you, are you putting, are you imposing more limitations on yourself? Uh, both. I, I'm The film itself is limiting because I am helping somebody else tell a story. That's, I think, part of the role of the film scorer, a film composer. But other limitations that I put on myself is that I created a limited sound set, so to speak. Like sure. it's string ensemble, essentially, piano, a few synths, and then some electric guitars. And there are moments where I want to really orchestrate this out because it would be so cool with the full woodwind and brass complement. But I want this to be tonally consistent all the way throughout. So how can I do what I want to do with just these limited forces and limited colors? And that's really fun to me, actually. Yeah. What would you say you've learned from 
writing these 60 minutes of music? Um, lots of doubling as an orchestration tool. Uh, even though I have limited forces, there's lots of doubling happening within those forces. And it, it helps me achieve a, a thicker sound and I can bring elements in or out of focus depending on what's being doubled. Hmm. And I used to try to write mostly independent parts for all the members of an ensemble. And, and I'm moving more and more in my writing towards fewer individual parts and more doubling. Cool. Are you using synth instruments for, or yeah, sampled instruments? I am. I, I use Pro Tools as my DAW, and then I often will use Reason for some synth lines, and then I've got several different string orchestra libraries, and even though each one sounds good by themselves, they often will sound better um, mixed. So I'll, I'll write out my string orchestra parts, but then when I'm bouncing it down and doing my final mixing, I'll actually have different libraries loaded so I'll have two or three different first violin legato patches loaded. And then I will combine those t- together so that I can get a really rich and to me more organic sounding ensemble. Cool. Yeah, that's a good idea. I suppose they, when you're doubling these sounds, it kind of helps mask that they're sampled in a way, maybe too. That's my hope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is a pretty low budget film. So we can't hire the you orchestra hire. though. That'd be <laughs> ideal. Yeah. It, it can also be pretty taxing on the computer because I'll have like three first violin legato patches and then I'll have three pizzicato patches and then a, uh, you know, a spiccato patch and maybe even a staccato and then a harmonic patch. And that's just the first violins. And so <laughs> then the computer's running... I don't know, 20 to 30 different MIDI tracks with all those samples loaded into the RAM at the same time. So that's, that's often fun. You have, I, I found that I often have to bounce things down into uh, wave files and then turn off the MIDI tracks so that I can free resources for more composing. Hmm. Yeah. On a related note, I, I just did a score for a commercial and in a way, I, I feel like people now almost expect to hear sampled instruments. Hmm. Because when I was, um, I sent them a, a recording of a cello and piano uh, piece I did. And it wasn't the best recording ever, just from the space. But the performance was pretty amazing itself. But they asked for a cleaner piece of music. And I was just thinking like, oh, well... I guess I can just do it on a MIDI sample piano. And I did that, and they were just totally happy with it. So, Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, a different piece. I, I wrote, composed something specifically for it. But still, I, I feel like people nowadays, like at least in commercial music and sort of film music too, they expect this super clean like sample. Yeah sound (laughs) and they expect it to be really in tune yes (laughs) whereas a live performance is not gonna sound like that (laughs) yeah and strings especially like 
people are used to this like perfect string sound, but like a solo cello really has a lot of like scraping and (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And you can hear the performer breathe and yeah. Yeah. That's the other thing too. It's like, yeah, good performers do that. (laughs) They breathe, but for a film or commercial, you can't really have that. So no, it's tricky. It's like those old Glenn Gould recordings of the, um, of the Goldberg variations. Yeah. You can hear, you can hear the pedal operating and he's humming along sometimes. Yeah. (laughs) I I always think the humming along is interesting. It's like, I don't know. I always notice bass players do that. (laughs) (laughs) Like jazz bass players or. Yeah. Which I, I think is kind of cool. Like adds a little extra layer (laughs) i think it's subconscious i suppose or just like showing off that yeah i know where i'm going with this part (laughs) (laughs) i can hum it and play it at the same time but anyways i was reading on your website about your consortium that you're putting together for choral music for schools yeah I was just wondering, um, this CSIC organization, I I was wondering if you could explain that a little bit. Composers and Schools in Concert is an organization um, based out of California, and their whole mission is to help bring the creation and performance of new music into high schools. Um, Well, all, all schools, but they really are focusing primarily on high schools. So they run programs where composers can do um, live workshops or uh, be composers in residence to work with these students. So students really get to experience the creation of um, music, both from the idea and inception all the way through to performance. And what uh, I have done with them is formed a consortium, which is when a group of people get together to commission a piece uh, for a new choral work. So the way it works is these schools agree to the consortium price they buy in. And what this allows them is a brand new piece of music written for their ensemble. They're commissioning it, except they only have to bear the weight of a small percentage of the commissioning fee. Because most commission fees can be in the thousands of dollars and school budgets just do not support that. So mm-hmm. I, I am writing this piece for uh, these young ladies, and I have commissioned a poet friend of mine to write a brand new text, and I have Skyped into the classrooms if they were outside of my area, and the one high school that's in my town, I went and met with the group, and through these conversations, I got to know who they were, I got to hear them sing, so I know what they're capable of, discussions about what they wanted this piece to look like, because I wanted them to both buy into the commissioning process and have ownership over the piece. So the choices that my poet and I have made are based on the comments that these young ladies gave, like what subjects are interesting to them and which subjects do they definitely not want to do. They don't want to sing about boys, that's for sure. (laughs) And then I'll Skype in again or visit the classroom and they'll perform it for me and I'll be able to give them real-time feedback and we can discuss parts of the piece that could be challenging and if I need to do any edits, then I will. And uh, 
in the end, they're going to perform it. So these young ladies have an experience that normally is not available to high school performers. And CSIC, Composers and Schools in Concert, is working with composers all the time to facilitate this same kind of activity. That's really cool. Is there a membership fee to join CSIC, or how do you get involved? It's just an application. So you can go to that website. Let me look up the URL for you here real fast. Composersandschools.com. And then there's a link right on the top. Composers and agents get involved, overview and apply, and you fill out uh, this application and you have to provide samples of your work. And there are different things you can apply for. Like if you want to do what I'm doing, you can say that. Or if you're really interested in doing more workshop type things where you can go in for just a day or an afternoon or even doing week-long type residencies, you can say that too. And if you have good ideas for that, I'm sure they'd love to hear them. So there, I'm sure there are composers out there who have a lot to say about technology and they could create a workshop where they go in and work with students to create music using technology, whatever that could look like. Cool. Yeah. Did they kind of contact you, these schools, or did you have to be a little more proactive and seek them out? I had to be fairly proactive. And I learned a lot through this process, actually. Uh, I sent out hundreds of emails to choral conductors all across the United States. And I had to pull on some of my network a little bit. I've had mostly private commissions in my career. So this is my first consortium. And people love the idea because it's not as expensive. But you have to work pretty hard to get enough people. So like about how many schools do you have? I have a a very small number actually because we didn't have enough time to build this together. But CSIC puts a limit of about 10 schools. And that's okay. that's just to help the composer. Because if I had to write a piece and as well as Skype in or meet in the classroom live with 10 schools twice, that's a significant amount of time. Yeah. So what did the the girls say they wanted to sing about? They were really interested in issues of social justice. I mean, things that are current in our society today. Uh, things of love, particularly sisterly love. Um, cool. Yeah. They, they were interested also in topics of inclusion because... LGB issues are are big right now in our culture, um, as well as racial equality issues. So the poet is writing a piece where he's going to explore kind of this idea of a band of sisters who together can then do anything. They can they're unstoppable when they when they're supporting each other. That's cool. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Yeah. Well, one of your pieces that struck me and I thought was really powerful and must have been an intense experience was um, your piece titled Rape. Oh, yeah. And it's like stories from women who were raped and 
are are those the actual people to, uh, who recorded the audio, or was it no. voice actors? Or for that performance, um, it was my wife is one of the readers, and then just some friends. So I went online and I went to these forums where women can tell their story, their rape survivor stories. So what those three readers are reading are verbatim transcripts of rape survivor stories. Those, those are real stories. My ex-boyfriend raped me. I used to wear skirts and makeup and I would always do my hair. But every time I did, he would call me a slut and have me change and take off my makeup and make me wear a ponytail. Then the hitting started. He would hit me so hard in the stomach, I would fall to the floor, and he would just start kicking me like I was a soccer ball. I finally said I had enough, and I broke up with him. One night, I was crossing the street to the park, and I saw him and his friends hanging out. I started to walk faster, but he saw me and caught up with me. He started telling me that he was sorry for everything that he did. I told him I couldn't forgive him right now, and I got up to walk away. The next thing I remember is that I was on the ground with him on top of me calling me a bitch and a whore. I started screaming and then his friends were over there holding me down. They took their turns and after they were done, he pulled out a knife and stabbed me twice in the stomach. Then he just left me there to die. That was a really hard piece to write. I had... uh the the girlfriend of a friend had been raped and it was just devastating for everybody and well i remember man when i was in high school the older sister of my girlfriend had been raped and it's just not good it's evil and i wanted to find a way to explore that and and a lot of my music actually explores social justice issues and tries to find ways to express what people who are going through these experiences have. It's not a piece that's very light or easy to listen to. No, it's not. Yeah, it it just makes you uncomfortable listening. Um, But I think, yeah, you, you did a good job with the electronics in the background, too. I had never gotten drunk before, but I drank too much that night. I got sick and one of the guys decided to take me outside. He took me to an empty shed and proceeded to rape me. I didn't know what was going on. I have flashbacks every day and I'm still afraid. I was really scared. Seeing him now makes me feel humiliated and dirty. Because of all that has happened, I'll never be the same again. I don't remember what it's like to not be afraid of people and to be happy. And now I wish that the memories would go away and that he would just go away.
I wanted to ask you about Diary of the One Swelling Sea. That was your collaboration with a poet and an artist also? Yep. It was a three-way collaboration. The poet and I were, we met while we were both in graduate school, uh, and I had actually set a text for two sopranos and string quartet of one of her poems. So we had been looking for a way to collaborate again, and we both agreed that we wanted to do a collaboration that involved a visual element. So the poet, Jill McCabe Johnson, who is based out of Orcas Island, which is in the San Juan Archipelago in Puget Sound, and then Corinne Duchesne, who's uh, up near Toronto, and myself. And Corinne Duchesne is the visual artist, and she does mainly drawing and painting on a huge scale. So often painting on mylar, transparent mylar, so the, the wall comes into play as well, and the paintings often can be 20 feet long. Whoa. <laughs> in cool. huge panels. And the poet had recently published a book called Diary of the One Swelling Sea, which was a set of poems told from the ocean's perspective. And a lot of them have to do with ecology, uh, trash and pollution, and how humans interact with the environment. And we, we just loved what she was doing with that, so we ran with it. And I wrote three pieces that are both excuse me, four pieces that are responding to her text and they're named from specific poems and also responding to the artist's work. So we, as we were creating, we were looking at and listening to and reading each other's work. And then we created this body of work that all spoke together. We were able to get it into an art museum outside of Philadelphia and it ran for 14 weeks. And the, the viewer would come into the gallery and the music would be playing in a loop. And then we had video of ocean-type movements and waves, and the poem text would come in and out of that. And we also had poem text mounted on the walls. And then we had the art all around. So we wanted the viewer to go in and have a completely immersive experience. Cool. The oil spill part really struck me as feeling like I was out at sea or... uh, Yeah, just kind of lonely feel. I believe strongly in collaboration and I think I think composers can do a lot more of that and there's a lot of really interesting ideas out there in the world if you look for them in places that you don't expect. One of the more interesting pieces I I wrote and I don't know if you listened to it but it was Skizakosa which is an electronic piece. Okay. Did I didn't you, get to that one. Okay, you should check it out. The way it works is I was working with uh, a choreographer friend. I love dancers by the way. And I also, uh, one of the parents of one of my daughter's friends from school is a scientist, a biologist, and what she researches is arachnid communication. So in her lab, (laughs) she has thousands and thousands of spiders. And we were talking and she's like, you know, spiders make sound. I'm like, no, they don't. She's like, yeah, they really do. 
And this is how they commute. The most mating dances are spiders making elaborate sounds and rhythms. So we went in and she showed us all her research and it's astounding. And I mean, if you were under your bed at night and you were right there next to these wolf spiders, you could hear it happening. It's just that we're usually killing them or throwing them outside. We don't ever (laughs) get to watch. So I took her research, which was video and audio. And I took these sounds that are all produced by spiders. And then I electronically manipulated them. So some I pitched mapped on a sampler and then edited some. I did some time-based manipulation on, and some are just presented as is. But the piece Schizocosa, which is eight minutes, eight seconds long, and has eight sections, all the sounds are produced by spiders. It's a piece that was also designed to be danced to. And we've danced this piece all over um, Kansas and Nebraska and Colorado. It's really cool. What kind of sounds are these that the spiders are making? Some spiders slam their bodies onto the ground and create this thud. I turned that into like a kick drum. (laughs) Some spiders have these kind of uh, rough sides on their abdomen and they'll take one of their hind legs and drag it up that way a cricket would to create these scraping sounds. Some spiders will take their front legs or their front antennae like things. I don't, I can't remember what they're called. I'm not the biologist and they'll drag them on the ground or on leaves or some other sort of substrate the way you can drag your thumb on a balloon to make a sound. So there's a whole variety of things and they can fully extend their legs and it kind of makes this snap. It's Hmm. really neat. You can go on YouTube and you can just Google spider mating dance. And there's one of this wolf spider going nuts because the female wolf spider is attached. She's glued to a stick so that she can't do anything. Uh And he's trying so hard to get her attention, but he's making crazy sounds. Cool. It is really neat. And the name, just so people know, Schizocosa is a specific genus of the wolf spider that um, my scientist friend, Dr. Eileen Hebbets, studies. So my okay. whole point of this long story is that there are so many incredible opportunities, especially for collaboration for composers, if you just look for them. And STEM, you know, uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, that's huge right now, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who are in the arts are feeling pushed to the side. But... The National Humanities Association and the science grants, all of them want a community engagement piece. So these scientists are desperate to find ways to bring people of general interest in. And this is a good door for composers because if you can go in and you can find a way to work with the material that these people are creating, you now have new fodder for works and there are often performance opportunities because the scientists through this grant money have to do something with it. 
They have to create shows. They have to teach people. They have to put it in museums. So your work could not only be paid for through the grant, but then it could be being performed. Hmm. So composers, go out. Yeah. Find scientists. Find scientists. How, where where would you find scientists? <laughs> <laughs> Just, uh, I guess, ask around. Ask around. Who do you know? Uh, if you're still at university, that's the best place because that's where scientists are primarily based. They need a research hub that will fund what they're doing. And so that's where the majority of scientists are. If, if you know anyone who's at all connected to the mathematics department, the engineering school, wherever, start talking to people and asking what, what are they researching? What questions are they answering? Yeah. Yeah, maybe there's a chance for... I know, like, data sonification is kind of a big thing now. Yeah. And, like, using data from science experiments or whatever and turning it into music somehow. But Yeah. They'll, they'll basically uh, use them as plot points, right? And Yeah. And you can use then the one, like, the y-axis could be pitch and the time could be x. Yeah. So you could talk, go to the approach these people and be like, I, I can do this and I can turn it into something really musical for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that would be the tricky part is like, I I think most scientists, they wouldn't think to use their findings as music. So I, I, I wonder how you get past that of like people looking at you funny when you ask about this. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you really love what you're doing and you're enthusiastic about writing music, when you're talking to people, people want to buy into that. They want to participate. You don't have to be pushy, but if it's clear that you really like creating new works of art and you like writing music and you're interested in what they're doing, they, I have found that people want to share. I'll just ask them, like, how can I participate in this? How can I do something with it? And they love it most of the time because they never get asked that. Yeah, that's true. Cool. Well, I I think that's a great idea. Well, Garrett, I think it's time for me to ask you our question chain question. So I have a question chain going from interviewee to interviewee. Mm-hmm. I just interviewed Bubba Hollenhorst. Uh, he has a pretty epic question for you. Oh, boy. So I'm just going to read it verbatim here. Um, if you were riding through the sky into battle on the back of your favorite mythical being and you were in charge of playing the war cry or war horn or whatever as you went into battle, please describe the mythical instrument that you would want to be playing (laughs) and give it a name and give it a name. Oh, this is a fun question. (laughs) Um, well, I think the first question has to be what mythical being are you riding on? Oh boy. I, I love birds of prey. So my first thought are the giant eagles from Tolkien's universe from middle earth. Yeah. But then I'm also fascinated by reptiles. So the idea of a dragon is really cool. Yeah. But, but just <laughs> just because I have to choose, I'm going to choose giant eagles. Okay. 
And I think the instrument would be some kind of mix between a shofar and um, what are those really long horns uh, that they use in like the Alps? Alpenhorn? Or yeah. So <laughs> I don't know if that's the name. It would but. kind of be like that, the Alpenhorn, but it would be from an animal like a shofar. And because what I want to shofar? Join, it's like a, a goat or a ram horn, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. And it creates this really cool sound. Then I'd have to learn how to buzz my lips properly, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I would do that. And what would I call it? Uh, I don't know. This is going to be silly, probably. <laughs> well, that's, that's the nature of the question here, Garrett. <laughs> the Alpen Farhorn. All right. I was trying to combine all those words. <laughs> nice. What's your question for my next guest? I think it's going to be a lot more mundane. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> um, what has been the most unexpected but important lesson you've learned in the last five years? That's a good one. That's tough. Yeah. The other challenge I put forward to composers is if they have time to come up with a intro theme for their episode. doesn't have to be anything elaborate, like 10 to 20 seconds. Um, but, yeah, if you have time in the next couple of weeks, that'd be I, cool. I think I can make something for you. Cool. I want to give you a chance to plug things here, too, because <laughs> uh, I know you have your podcast, Composer on Fire, yeah. And and it, I encourage you guys to listen to the podcast, which you can find on iTunes or Stitcher, but you can learn more about it at ComposerOnFire.com. And if you go to ComposerOnFire.com slash ComposerQuest, I've got a special gift for you guys to help you as you build your careers as composers. I want to encourage you and let you know that it is possible and you can do it and I want to help you along the way. So go to composeronfire.com slash composerquest, um, and I'll have something nice for you there. Cool. A surprise present. A, sur a surprise. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, thanks again, Garrett, and I look forward to talking with you again here in, uh, in just a few when weeks. I'm on your show. Yeah. yeah. This will be great. I really enjoyed this, Charlie. Thank you. I really like what you're doing, and I've enjoyed listening to your podcast a lot. Well, thanks. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Composer Quest with Garrett Hope. Make sure to check out the Composer on Fire podcast at ComposerOnFire.com. Again, Garrett's interview of me will be posted the day after this episode. You can find Garrett's own music at GarrettHope.com. If you want to stay in touch with me, find Composer Quest on Facebook, Twitter, or email me directly, charlie at composerquest.com. Now it's time for another... Charlie's Music Production Lesson. I mentioned in my talk with Garrett Hope that I recently scored a commercial, and I thought I'd share my process for that project. The filmmakers at Uptop Films decided to make something for the Doritos Crash the Super Bowl contest where anyone can submit a commercial, and the top five will air during the game. <laughs>
The guys I was working with at Uptop Films had a great commercial already filmed. It opens with a nostalgic black and white scene of kids playing outside. While the boy takes a bite of a single Dorito, the narrator says, You'll always remember the first time you tasted a Dorito. We quickly pass through a trippy time portal montage, and we find the grown-up version of this boy staring longingly into a snack machine. His bag of Doritos is stuck in the machine, and according to his friends, It's his last dollar. Anything we can do? Probably not. Meanwhile, his friend munches on his own bag of Doritos. Let him ride it out. So what was I going to do musically with this commercial? Well, the team had already put some temporary music in there, a Philip Glass piano piece. Some composers hate having temp music placed in a film because often the director can't get past that exact sound, even if the new composition actually fits it better. A classic example of temp music is 2001 A Space Odyssey, in which Stanley Kubrick scrapped the composed score and went with his original temp placement of classical music. I usually find temp scores more helpful than not, as long as the filmmakers aren't completely close-minded about my composition. For this Doritos commercial, I knew I could do better than the Philip Glass piece just in terms of making the music fit the emotions of the scene with better timing. I knew the opening would have to start nostalgic and simple, then it would open up into a magical world for the time travel montage, and it would end on a sad, empty feeling. I'll play my score as it turned out in the final commercial, then I'll break it down. We were all children. The innocent gift of the new world around you. Your first best friends. Your first home run. Memories fade. But you'll always remember the first time you tasted a Dorito. Is he okay? It's his last dollar. Anything we can do? Probably not. Let him ride it out. The Philip Glass piece inspired me in four ways. First, I decided on piano, since the same instrumentation as a temp track is usually a good idea. Even if the director isn't musical, they probably have a good instinct for choosing instrumentation. Second, I decided to use arpeggios, a la Philip Glass. Arpeggios are such a quick and effective way to make a piece have motion. If you're feeling like your composition is plotting, try breaking your chords up into arpeggios. Third, I might not have chosen to start in a minor key, since the visuals start with kids having fun outside. But I think the director made a good choice to start minor and mysterious to match the black and white slow motion footage. Fourth, the Philip Glass piece had some very fast, fluttery parts that sound magical. I used that idea in the time warp scene. For these fluttery instruments, I used two flutes and a marimba. Here are those three parts separate and together. I should point out that all of these are sampled instruments that I'm triggering with my MIDI keyboard. As I mentioned in my talk with Garrett Hope, it seems like nowadays filmmakers expect very polished recordings, and sometimes sampled instruments are the only way to get it. Although these sampled instruments lack the human touch you'd get with live performers, I'm starting to get sucked in by their ease of use and level of polish. One thing that's essential if you're going to use sampled instruments is adding a good reverb. 
Take a listen to how my arrangement sounds without reverb. Sounds pretty terrible, especially the solo piano. Here's what it sounds like with reverb. For the nerds out there, I'm using a Max for Live effect called Convolution Reverb Pro. Convolution Reverb is cool because it models real spaces. For my mix, I actually applied two reverbs, a large wooden room and York Minster Cathedral for some really long reverb tales. Using two Convolution Reverbs might not be the correct way to do it, but to my ear, it helps create a good wash of reverb to make these sampled instruments sound more realistic. Now let's talk about some composition techniques I used. Since my score was only going to be 20 seconds long, I knew my melodic timing would be really important. It's so short I could only fit about three phrases in, so I tried to time them out so they'd line up with the mood shifts in the commercial. The first phrase had to convey a sense of mystery and awe, which I got all thanks to one note, an unexpected sharp fourth scale degree. This note was questioned by the director. He asked if the note could go up instead of down. I interpreted that as, this note sounds too mysterious or dark. So I tried a few variations with the whole melody up an octave, which seemed to lighten the mood considerably. I wanted to give the director a couple variations, so here's one I did where I lowered that sharp four scale degree to sound more normal. For another variation, I tried adding a harmony part that would reinforce the sharp four by making it sound a little more like a ragtime accidental. I sent all these variations to the director, and he wrote back that he actually had grown to like my original version. I think this was an example of the director being stuck on the original temp music, and not prepared with fresh ears for my score. So to finish up my discussion about melodic phrasing, I knew I wanted to end the second phrase on a high note, literally, right as the kid bites into the Dorito and warps through time. Since the previous phrase also ended on a high note, the end of the second phrase had to be even higher. The third and final phrase starts way up high on the note that the second phrase ended on. My idea was that the viewer would have the rug pulled out from under them, musically speaking. The thick, bassy texture during the time warp scene cuts out completely, and you're left with a lonely solo piano. Before we listen to the full composition, I want to remind you that you can find all of these production lessons as their own sub-podcast called Charlie's Music Production Lessons. You can find them on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcasting app, or at composerquest.com cmpl. Now when you're listening to my score, notice how the three melodic phrases are related. This is an example of sequencing, 
where I use the same rhythmic and melodic pattern for each phrase, but I change up the notes. Also, even though phrase 1 and 2 start out very similarly, the chords underneath are different. Under phrase 2, I initiate a key change by using a secondary dominant chord that pulls us out of E minor into C major. So here is my score for the Doritos commercial called Ride It Out. Thank you.